Turn in your Bibles, please, to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3. We are four, I want to say four weeks into our study in the Old Testament book of Proverbs. And we find ourselves in the third chapter. We'll read the first 12 verses of Proverbs chapter 3. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. This is the word of the Lord. Father in heaven, We ask that you would reveal yourself in these moments as our Father. Uh, Not just in the sense that you are our creator and that we have our existence as a result of your sovereign choice, but in a much deeper, more intimate more meaningful sense that you are our father because we are in your son and lord we pray that if there are any here this morning who don't have that confidence that today would be the day that you would bring about the new birth in their hearts father we pray these things in jesus name amen most christians know and love The fact that God, the God who made the world is unique, one of a kind, unlike anything or anyone else in existence, but that doesn't stop us from drawing comparisons between God and the things that he has made. Now, sometimes those comparisons are warranted because they are revealed in scripture. Sometimes they're unwarranted because they are not revealed in scripture. Sometimes we draw these comparisons explicitly in order to teach ourselves and others. Sometimes we do so implicitly or without even realizing that we're doing it. I think many, many people imagine God to be sort of like an exacting boss, a finicky employer with all of us as worker bees. He stands over us, observing our works, testing our strength, 
exposing our weaknesses, offering praise and blame, reward and punishment, all while carrying around a stack of pink slips because if we mess up enough, we may find ourselves walked out of the building. Some Christians are okay with this because they feel like they're doing a good job, that they're adding value to the Christian company, and so they are fine with that, and others suffer. They imagine they're on probation, constantly blundering at just the wrong moments. Other people imagine that God is sort of like Gramps. You know, the white hair, the eyes that crinkle when he smiles. Gramps is just happy to see us every once in a while. Not for too long, of course. Gramps is someone you visit. He's not someone you live with. And he always has little treats and gifts. He doesn't care whether you get good grades or make the starting lineup. His love is indiscriminate, but it's also insignificant. He has nothing to say about your life, no real wisdom to offer. He just just keeps telling the same stories over and over again about days gone by. I suppose that others imagine God to be sort of like a coach, you know, tough love that helps you reach your potential. Or maybe God is like a cosmic therapist to you, soothing your feelings of guilt and insecurity with platitudes and meditative practices. Now, I surmise that one of the reasons we draw these comparisons, some of them illegitimate, is because we live in a world that that pollutes the meaning of the notion emphasized over and over again in the Bible that God is our Father. There seem to be fewer and fewer examples of godly fatherhood in our society. So bring up that topic of father. And for many people, it's just painful to think about. But actually, the fatherhood of God is no mere illustration. The fatherhood of the father is essential to his personhood. He is the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's been true from eternity past. And this emphasis carries right through to our relationship with him as well. God is our father. That's not just a New Testament idea. That's throughout the Bible. It's right here in this passage. The privilege of calling God our father is a privilege afforded to the sons and daughters of his covenant, the demands of which were fulfilled by none other than his only begotten son, to whom all of us as believers stand united. So when you think about how God views your life, your decisions, your priorities, your uh, plans, this is what you need to remember about God. If you're a believer, you are united by faith to the Son of God who kept the demands of the covenant on your behalf, and that means that the God of the universe, the God who made you, is your Father and stands in a covenant relationship with you. He cares about your life. His thoughts about your life and your decisions are the thoughts of a loving father. Today I want to talk about what that means because if you can grasp this, if you can internalize, if you can be confident in the fact that you are the child of a perfect, wise, loving father who never fails then you will understand the point of your life. The last few weeks, we've seen what happens to those who go with the gang 
We've seen what happens to those who ignore the voice of wisdom, which in this day and age is, of course, the same as the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. But now our attention turns to a positive subject. What about people who do listen? What about those who are faithful as sons or daughters of the covenant? What are the blessings and the benefits of living in a covenant relationship with God the Father? Well, in this passage, we're going to see that actually covenant blessing follows covenant faithfulness. Covenant blessing follows covenant faithfulness. God is your father. He wants you to be a faithful son or daughter. And there are blessings associated with that faithfulness. Not the rewards of a boss, not the treats given out by grandpa, not the kudos given out by a coach, not the encouragements of a therapist, but no, blessings, the blessings of a father to his beloved children. Notice, first of all, from verses 1 through 4, that covenant blessings follow faithful obedience. Covenant blessings follow faithful obedience. You'll notice that this entire passage is actually split up into pairs. There are uh, uh, six pairs in these 12 verses. The, uh, The odd verses are a command, and then the even verses are a promise that's attached to that command. Now, there is a break in the pattern. We'll see that in a few minutes, but generally speaking, that's the pattern. And these first two pairs, so verses one through four, two pairs, are, uh, they go together and they have to do with the son's orientation toward his father's instruction. Literally, it says, my Torah, do not forget, my mitzvot, keep. These terms are often used to refer to the covenant instructions of God himself found in the first five books of the Bible. It's the Torah of God, typically, but here in this passage, it's the teachings of the father that the son is reminded to keep. So consider our first pair. Do you want a long and peaceful life? Then here's the lesson. A faithful son internalizes his father's commands. A faithful son internalizes the father's commands. Now we skipped over chapter two because I've actually preached from chapter two on two different occasions in this church. But uh, just quickly in chapter two, in the father's second lecture, He asked the son to seek wisdom, to call out for it, to sort of mine the precious gold of the father's wisdom and and, and find it to be his treasure in order to have a prosperous life. And now he's telling his son, what you've mined out, that wisdom that you've sought, that you've received from me, now I want you to keep it. I want you to guard it. I want you to internalize it. A faithful son internalizes his father's commands, and he says, if you do that, you'll have a long and peaceful life. This language is directly tied to the covenant demands listed in the 20th chapter of the book of Exodus. You remember what the fifth command is out of the Ten Commandments? Honor your father and your mother so that your days may be long in the land. Even the Apostle Paul observes this connection in his letter to the church at Ephesus. He says, children, obey your parents. This is the first commandment with the promise that you may live long, that it may be well with you and that you may live long in the land. They're recognizing, Paul is recognizing this promise that goes along with honoring father and mother. In other words, what these verses describe is a biblical family arrangement. Don't just dismiss it as an Old Testament reality or uh, a, a literary fiction employed by the sage. No, he's setting up for us. This is what the structure of a biblical family ought to look like. 
Paul thinks it applies to you and me today. In God's plan, the voice of the Father instructing his children ought to be aligned with the word of God itself. The Father's not absent. The Father's not silent. No, he speaks, and when he speaks, he so internalized the word of God that when he gives commands, when he gives instruction to his son, they are one and the same with the word of God. It's God's plan. Why doesn't the son internalize the word of God? Maybe it's because his father isn't speaking the word of God. And I say that with all the fear and trepidation of a dad of four kids who falls way short of the example of our heavenly father. But this passage describes what God desires. And if you had any question, men, about your role then the repeated emphasis in the opening chapters of Proverbs ought to lay those doubts to rest once and for all. Now, mom is present. We see that in the book of Proverbs. But mom shouldn't have to take the lead all the time. She should be able to hear what dad is saying and say, good job, yeah, I agree with that. (laughs) But it's not just the father's commands. Notice the second pair of verses, verses 3 and 4. He says, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Once again, this is the type of language that the rest of the Bible actually associates with the character of our Heavenly Father. Steadfast love and faithfulness over and over again is applied to God. And here the Father is saying to the Son, I want you to have that steadfast love and faithfulness. So here's the point. Not only does a faithful son internalize his father's commands, a faithful son imitates his father's character. He imitates his father's character. He's saying, son, watch me. Look at the way I treat you. Notice how I imitate the character of God. He's merciful and gracious. He's abounding in loyal love. You take those qualities, those things that you see me do, and you bind them to your heart, and you write them like a law on the tablet of your heart, and you imitate me. A wise son is a son who observes the character of the father, his kindness, his loyal love, and cultivates those same qualities in himself. I'm reminded once again uh, of the church of Ephesus. In this case, John writing uh, what Jesus told him to write in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, and and he says, hey, you've got a lot of good things that you're doing, but I've got one thing against you. You've lost your love that you had at first. We're reminded in that letter that you can have all your doctrine and your teaching and your belief system line up exactly with Scripture and you could be completely separate from God. Because if you don't imitate his character, then you're not doing what a son does. A true covenant son doesn't just internalize the father's commands. He imitates the father's character. He embraces the mercy and the kindness of God. And what is it that's promised as an attendant blessing? He says, length of days and years of life and peace, favor and good success in the sight of God and man. That sounds pretty good. Think of young Jesus. We know very little detail about his life as a young boy, but we do know, according to to Luke's gospel, that he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. He's a perfect covenant son. Now, if you're not a Christian, you may not realize how much of the happiness and peace and prosperity of those who follow Christ 
how much of that flows out of their faithfulness to their relationship with God and their role as sons and daughters. You may not realize how much of the suffering in the world could be alleviated if we all took our place in the family of God. I'm not saying life is easy as a Christian. We'll talk about why in a minute. But I don't think we need to be embarrassed about the fact, the reality, that so many believers enjoy and walk in the blessings of God. They enjoy vitality and peace, the favor of men and God. Why? Because they're living in covenant faithfulness to the commands that God is giving them. They're internalizing the commands of the Father, and they're imitating the character of the Father. Covenant blessings follow faithful obedience. A son or daughter who internalizes the commands of the father and imitates his character. But the sage continues, and now he draws our attention upwards. Covenant faithfulness isn't just an earthly matter of the way that we respond to the commands and the examples of the godly. It's also a matter of our relationship to God himself. So notice with me in the second place, not only does Do covenant blessings follow faithful obedience? But secondly, covenant blessings follow the fear of the Lord. Covenant blessings follow the fear of the Lord. In these verses, Solomon presents three additional verse pairs, three more command blessing combinations, all having to do with our relationship to God in verses 5 through 10. And... uh, uh, to, to me, I need help sometimes to remember uh, what the Bible says. And so I think of this in terms of, uh, of navigating on a, a boat or a ship. I'm not an expert in these things, so if I get it wrong, forgive me. But it seems to me that if you're taking a boat or a ship out onto the ocean, you're going you're to need at least three things. You're going to need a compass, you're going to need a captain, and you're going to bring some cargo. And that's what these verses have to do with. Notice that if covenant blessings follow the fear of the Lord, that that means that a faithful son remembers, according to verses 5 and 6, that God is his compass. God is his compass. Trust in the Lord, he says, with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your path. What he's saying is, when you are charting a course, God ought to be the one to pick the course. God is your compass. Everybody here faces big life decisions. Where should I go to college? Should I even go to college? Am I dating the right person? How should I find a spouse? Should I look for a spouse or should I just kind of not worry about it and let God bring somebody into my life if he wants? Should I remain in my current job or try to find a different job? Is it right for me to try to make more money than I'm currently making? Is that okay? How much money should I spend on a house? Should I even try to buy a house right now? What about my kids? What kind of financial assistance should I give to my kids? Is that going to help them or is that going to hurt them? How about my relationship with my spouse? Uh, They're they're making bad choices, what should I do about it? Am I faithfully keeping my marriage vows or am I actually just enabling disobedient behavior? What about my health? Should I take the doctor's advice and and do what he's asking me to do or should I pay more attention to the downsides that he says are going along with what he's prescribing that I do? 
Now, we could go on and on and on and on. All of these decisions are faced by all of us, and there are hundreds more, and they're all made up of hundreds of micro decisions, the outcome of which can have an outsized impact down the line. What should we do? I'll tell you what we're often tempted to do. We're tempted to lean on our own understanding in these matters, right? We're tempted to figure it all out on our own, and we fail to ask, I wonder if God has an opinion about this. Has he expressed that opinion anywhere in the pages of the Bible? But no, we want to do it our way. And, and, and we aren't supposed to do that. And we know that we aren't supposed to do that. So we often say things like, well, I prayed about it. Or, you know, I just didn't have peace about such and such. And I hear this sort of thing all the time because as a preacher, uh, when people talk to me about the decisions that they're making, they often feel a little uh, uncertain and a little insecure, and so they try to make it sound even more spiritual than it really is. But the truth of the matter is, a wise son doesn't just paper over his choices with religious talk designed to deflect the judgments of a preacher or a pious grandmother. No, he sincerely asks, which way, God, do you want me to go? And I can tell you that if you want to know what God thinks about your decisions, you're going to need to ask him. You're going to have to pray about it. And then you're going to have to open up this book and ask yourself, God, can you ask God, hey, can you show me? Have you, have you spoken into this issue in your word? You're going to need to pay attention to the people that God has brought into your life who've been walking with the Lord for a long time and, and hear what they say. Don't just ask them what they think and then ignore it and go away and do what you want to do and lean on your own understanding. Listen to what they have to say and then really weigh that and bring that to the Lord. You ever known anybody who uh, claims to be a believer in Jesus? Maybe they genuinely are, but their life is just kind of one series of failed projects after another. I ran into somebody like this the other day, just an acquaintance, nobody in here. Um, but always, every time I see this person, it's something new. Nothing ever gets finished. And this time was no different. I said, how's it going at church? Oh, I don't go to that church anymore. I started going to this other church. How's work going? Well, I don't do that job anymore. It wasn't quite what it was cracked up to be. Now I'm doing something else. Listen, that kind of thing happens, right? It's okay if you have to change churches or if you have to change jobs. That's not what I'm saying. But the pattern of life, what, why is that? Why is a, a, a person like that so unstable? It's not because he's allowed God to set the direction of his life. No, it's because he's a double-minded man. And James says he's unstable in all of his ways. It's because we go God's way to a certain point, and then we say, well, wait a second, God, you're leading me over here, and I kind of would like to go over there, so I'm going to take the steering wheel back, and we steer ourselves back to where we want to go, and that creates instability. But here in this passage, we're reminded that those who trust in the Lord and don't lean on their own understanding are not going to be unstable and directionless. They're going to have straight paths. A faithful son remembers that God is his compass. A faithful son remembers that God is his captain. That God is his captain. Look at verse 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. 
We observed several weeks ago, the fear of the Lord is uh, really the foundation of, of wisdom altogether. What is the fear of the Lord? It's the conviction that I'm utterly vulnerable to and dependent on the pure, present, powerful I am. Everybody fears something. Everybody adjusts their life choices to something, to a power that they consider ultimate in their life. And for too many people, the ultimate toward which they are orienting their entire life is not the Lord, it's their own intellect. But Solomon says, don't be wise in your own eyes. See, a faithful covenant son is someone who fears the Lord and as a result hates evil. He's someone who is utterly aware that he is vulnerable to and dependent on the present, pure, powerful I am. In other words, he doesn't just ask God to direct him in the big decisions of life. He lives his life under the eye of God. He worships and loves the Lord. And there's a blessing attached to that. Healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Covenant blessing follows covenant faithfulness. It follows the fear of the Lord. Such a faithful son remembers that God is his compass, that God is his captain. But notice as well, he also remembers, and this is key, that God owns the cargo. God owns the cargo. That's one we get a little uncomfortable about, isn't it? No, honor the Lord with your wealth. And with the first fruits of all your produce, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. If you're like me, you read that and you think a full barn, uh, that's kind of the problem that I have with my garage attached to my house. It's full of stuff that needs to get thrown in the dump, right? But that's not what Solomon is saying. He's saying you'll have prosperity, financial stability. Wouldn't that be nice? That would be a blessing. And if that's what you want, then understand that there's a condition. Honor the Lord with your wealth. In other words, don't focus on the money you don't have. Focus on how you're using the wealth that God has given you right now. Are you using that to honor the Lord or are you using that to just please yourself? What does that look like to honor the Lord with our wealth? The Bible's actually really, really clear on this. Uh, each of us is called to work hard for six days and rest on the seventh day. Each of us is given a goal. Work hard enough. This is Ephesians chapter four. You can go check it yourself. Work hard enough to cover your own bills and have something to give away to somebody else. And that means just simple math dictates that we are supposed to live on less than what we make, right? But what do we do? What do we tend to do? Not you, but some people out there, right? What do we tend to do? We want to live on more than what we make, right? Listen, you don't have to have a degree in finance to do these basic things. You don't need to be rich in order to do these basic things. Anyone with limbs that work and a functioning brain and an elementary level of understanding of arithmetic can do what the Bible says to do with our wealth. It's not too difficult for the average person the problem is we don't want to do it. How many sons and daughters of the covenant community fulfill those basic expectations? How many of us actually even try to, kind of, to have the kind of rhythm that's clearly laid out in Scripture? No, we don't want to do that. We want to work seven days a week. We've always got a project going on. It doesn't honor the Lord. How many believers actually live on less than what we make? 
I, I think if you open your eyes and look at the people in your church family and observe how many people, how many faithful believers with a modest income and not very much understanding of finance, nevertheless, have more than enough because they're living in obedience to the scripture. And you start to notice that, you'll see the truth of this passage. Honor the Lord with your wealth. Your barns are gonna be filled with plenty and your vats bursting with wine. Why do you think believers enjoy that type of situation? Is it because they're lucky? Is it because they had a long lost rich uncle pass away and leave them a windfall? Not usually. It's usually because they're just honoring the Lord with their wealth. They didn't serve themselves. They served the Lord and the Lord blessed his children. Covenant blessings follow faithful obedience. They follow the fear of the Lord. They fall on faithful sons and daughters who remember that God is their compass, that God is their captain, and that God owns the cargo. Now, what I'm saying is not rocket science. It's plainly true. And you don't have to be a Bible scholar to see that. It's right there in the text. The fact is, you can walk into any faithful gospel-preaching church anywhere in the world, any country in the world, and notice that there are believers in that church who are enjoying the blessings of the covenant of being a son or a daughter in connection with their own obedience to the wisdom that God lays out in Scripture. Nevertheless, most, if not all of you, if your brain is turned on, you probably feel an objection arising in your heart. A whole host of objections, maybe, but here's an example. Jake, doesn't what you're saying sound a lot like the health and wealth gospel that treats God like a cosmic vending machine? Something seems off here. Or maybe... Wait a second, what about the martyrs that are described in the New Testament or throughout church history who were faithful and they actually suffered because of their obedience to the Lord? What about them? For that matter, what about the lived experience of believers today? What about the tremendous, gratuitous suffering of believers who are not perfect but are following what God prescribes in his word, and yet they suffer. What about them? What about the Christian woman who served Christ for decades but ends up burying all three of her own children? Or the generous brother who aggressively gives away whatever he can, but he still lives in a slum in the middle of Dhaka, Bangladesh? Or the college student preparing to give her life on the mission field but has to drop out of school because she found out she has a life-threatening illness. I mean, we all know people who have suffered in, in these ways. Maybe you're one of them. Many students of the book of Proverbs have had similar thoughts and they've reached the conclusion, maybe you've heard people say something like this, that passages like the one we're studying today are not uh, promises but principles that hold true as a rule of thumb most of the time. I've heard many people say that, and I've read it in even scholarly commentaries. Now, I get why we might say that, that this generally holds true, but not always. 
But I think in order to just leave it there, we'd have to ignore the covenant relational undertones of this passage. This is something that, this, this passage is reminding us that God the Father is keeping a commitment to his covenant children. These aren't mere universal principles that apply about 80% of the time and God tries his best, but every once in a while, a, a Christian who's faithful slips through the cracks. No, these are relational commitments arising out of our identity as sons and daughters of the king. So, so what, what, what do we do with that reality? Well, there are a lot of things that we could pull out of scripture that address that particular question. Uh, the entire book of Job addresses questions like that. But there's actually an answer right here in our passage. So notice with me, not only do covenant blessings follow faithful obedience, not only do they follow the fear of the Lord, but thirdly, covenant blessings follow fatherly discipline. Covenant blessings follow fatherly discipline. My son, he says again, underscoring the importance of what he's about to say. He wants to emphasize, don't miss this guy. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. So again, we've got another command in the odd verses, but then in the even verse, we're expecting a promise and he breaks the pattern and he gives us a reminder of what we already possess. Why? For the Lord, for I am reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights why haven't i received the promised blessings is it because god has abandoned me is it because he's messed up is it because he's as good as he's trying to be but he he's 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 limited is it because i don't really have a place in his covenant love it may be the exact opposite Have you considered the fact that the trial you are facing is evidence not that God has abandoned you, but that you are his beloved child? The son in whom he delights. In other words, the faithful son is reminded of the fact that he stands in relation, not just to an earthly father, but to a perfect heavenly father who disciplines him faithfully. You say, well, I guess God is punishing me and that's why I'm going through what I'm going through. No, that is absolutely not the case. That's not what Solomon is saying. I don't know about you, but I don't ever punish my children. Punishment means paying the price for breaking the rules. That's not the goal. Discipline and punishment are two totally different things. If God were to punish us, we would utterly perish. He doesn't want to punish us. He wants to discipline us so that we might grow. His discipline is for our good. You say, okay, well, I guess I'm suffering. I'm going through what I'm going through because I did something wrong. Maybe, but not necessarily. Not all discipline is correction. God's discipline is often formative and proactive and and we parents if in our better moments we know that we do the same thing we say kids it's time to get up and get out of bed that's discipline it's not corrective it's just we're trying to form their little life to not sleep past noon right it's time to get out of bed 
Now, that's a silly example, but you know what I'm saying. In, in, in fact, and the Lord does this all the time, but when the writer of the Hebrews recalls this very passage, he brings it up as an encouragement to the weary, not as a rebuke to the disobedient. Hebrews, as you may know, is essentially a sermon addressed to believers who were suffering persecution, isolation, rejection. They were tempted to throw in the towel, to give up on their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's, he's preaching at them and he's saying, hey, Jesus is better. Jesus is better than anything else. Jesus is better than Moses, better than the angels, better than the types and shadows that, that point to him. Don't give up on your commitment to the Lord Jesus. And he cites example after example of the saints of old who exhibited faith. That is, they experienced a gap between their covenant faithfulness and the promised blessing. There was this gap in time, and sometimes that gap went further than the end of their own life on earth. And they stayed faithful. And he says, consider the faithful men and women of old. Consider Jesus, who endured the opposition of the wicked. Don't throw in the towel. Don't forget that the discipline you're enduring is one of the marks of sonship. He's got a good reason for allowing the difficulty and the delay in receiving the promised blessing. And one day, it's going to make sense. Covenant blessings follow covenant faithfulness, and ultimately all covenant blessing is afforded us because of the faithfulness of Jesus. But you may find in your day-to-day life that those blessings are delayed, that they're mixed in and mingled with the griefs and sorrows of living in a sin-sick world. And you, you might find yourself experiencing the painful comforts of the rod and the staff of the good shepherd, and that's not always fun. But it's not because he doesn't love you. It's not because you have to earn your spot as a son or a daughter. But because of what a, that's what a wise and, and loving father does. Skillfully, deftly, he weaves a tapestry of pain and pleasure in our lives because he's got a goal for us. He wants us to come to a place where we are strongly, certainly convinced that we are sons and daughters and he wants to grow our faith. You can't have faith if you get everything right away. Faith is the evidence of things, what? Not seen, right? You can't hope for what you already have. Faith and hope are the certitude of future grace. And if you don't have faith, then you can't please the Father. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. That's what the writer of the Hebrews says. Because faith means you believe that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. But God knows something we easily in our weakness forget. That it is better for that blessing to be delayed. So that we might grow in our knowledge that he loves us as sons. Than it is for us to get the long life and the peace and the prosperity right now. So don't despise. Don't look down on or consider lightly or of little value the discipline of I am because that discipline, that reality that the cross comes first and then the crown is proof positive that the fatherly love of the faithful God isn't just for somebody out there, it's for you. There's nothing better than knowing I am a child of God. 
There's no greater covenant blessing than to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're a son or a daughter in whom I am finds delight. He finds delight in you. How do you know his discipline? Some of you here this morning, quite frankly, don't know the blessings of the faithfulness of the Father because you don't know whether he is your Father. I mean, you might know that he's your creator, and in that sense, you know he's your Father, but you don't know him in that close personal relationship of a father to a son or a father to a daughter in Christ. Did you know that you can be certain and sure that you are a child of the King today? It's not by living right. It's not, his love isn't for sale to the person who keeps all the rules. He doesn't need you to do that. He doesn't get anything out of that. Christ already obeyed the demands of the covenant. It's not by religious ritual. He doesn't care about that. That's to help you, not him. No, he offers this gift for free to those who believe. To those who say, my only hope is Christ. I'm a sinner. All my good works are just getting in the way and I've got to shove them over to the side. They're they're like trash to me. They're like weights that are holding me back from running to Jesus. He's the only one that can rescue me from my sin. I need him and I believe in him. So I'm going to push my trust in myself over to the side. I'm going to stop trusting in me. I'm going to start trusting in him alone. I'm calling out to Jesus. I need a savior. That could happen today. And you can know that God is your father. Maybe you know you're a Christian, but you're not walking in all that God has for you because you have up to this point stubbornly refused to live the way that he's calling you to live. How's that going? Isn't it true that the father is lovingly, patiently disciplining you If you hear the voice of the Father, the conviction of the Holy Spirit calling you out for a life choice you're continuing to make in rebellion against the clear teaching of the Word of God, that doesn't mean he's angry and hates your guts and wants you to to be out of his life. That means he loves you, and he wants you to live in a way that you're walking in the blessing. Make today the day you come back to him. Maybe you're here today and you're a believer and you're being faithful and you're just suffering. And I I just want to say, don't give up. Those blessings are for you if you're in Christ. Sometimes there is a gap in time between the promise and the fulfillment. Maybe you're living in that gap today. Because God is cultivating in you the kind of faith that reminds you that you really are a son or a daughter of the king. He's got a good plan and a good reason. And you've got a whole cloud of witnesses who've gone before you. You've got a savior who went to the cross for you. Their example is cheering you on. Keep going, keep believing, keep obeying, keep walking in the instruction of your heavenly father. Because the day is coming when you will see that it was worth it all. You're carrying a cross, but that crown is coming. Covenant blessings follow covenant faithfulness. Would you pray with me?
Lord, we're overwhelmed by this phrase. A son in whom the father finds delight. How could it be? How can it be that you, my God, my creator, the ruler of the ends of the earth, the ruler of the universe, would take delight in me? Your love is beyond description. And yet sometimes it's painful. So, Father, I pray for any in this room who are being formed or corrected by your discipline. Father, I pray that you would grow us all in our faith. Help us to trust you and know that your ways are perfect and that your love is everlasting. That nothing happens outside your will. And that there will be a day when we'll look back and say, okay, I see now. Father, if there are any in this room who are far from you, don't know that you are their father because they believed in the Lord Jesus, I pray that today would be the day that their heart cries out to you in faith in him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand. We're going to sing about the sovereign wisdom of God. And uh, I just want to invite you to take a moment in your in your own heart to respond to the word of God. Don't let this moment pass you by. Whatever the spirit is leading you to do, uh, I would challenge you to do. Let's sing together.